This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Hannah. And I'm Sarah. And this is Big Small Talk. This is the podcast where we try and cover the entirety of the news cycle from the serious to the frivolous all in one place. Because loving pop culture doesn't mean you don't understand politics. And today we're going to talk about the murder of a Sydney couple, Madame Webb, Alabama's IVF ruling, Billie Eilish shading TikTokers, two years since Russia invaded Ukraine and new gender pay gap data. But first, we would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we're recording today, the Gadigal people, and pay our respects to elders past and present. But before we get into our actual head Headlines. I want to talk about our personal headlines for this week because we're actually going to do something a little bit different because we have me as our sponsor. And for those who don't know, every time you pay with your Spend Me Everyday account, me donates to a charity on your behalf. So there's five different charities that you can choose from, each of which aligns with a colored Visa debit card so that you can do good every day. And that got us thinking about what are the big and the small things that we do every day to try and do good? Honestly, at first, I was like struggling because it's been a busy few weeks and I was thinking like, shit, what have I done? I know, I know. And actually got a bit scary because I was like, I, maybe I'm not doing anything right now. But part of the conversation we were having is exactly this, that we don't really recognise the small things that we're doing. And often if we're not like spending a day volunteering, which we used to do, but are currently really busy and neither of us are getting to that. Yeah. What are the small things we're doing every day? And because that's kind of like our shtick is like, for me, at least I'm like, what's one thing I could do tomorrow? Small thing, big thing, whatever it is. Literally even stuff like, okay, I'm going to give myself a bit of credit because even when I go to Woolies, I do the little 30 cent roundup. The roundup. I did the roundup at office folks for back to school as well. And then I was thinking about this as well. And I said to you, I did. I went to a rally last Saturday and I didn't even See, give myself- that's do-gooder. Yeah, but I wasn't even, I think it's because it's like sometimes it's so part of our day-to-day that you forget that you are taking a good action, a positive action in your life. Yeah. And also the one I was thinking about was one of my favorite things to do, which I think is such a simple thing to do with any spare change that I do have is I always try to go to a cafe and if they have a pay it forward coffee scenario I will always buy a coffee for someone else that I can just like put like I I know one of my favorite cafes it's like a social enterprise has like a like a clipboard system where you put a clip on the board if you've paid it forward and someone can grab the clip and then they get their coffee free oh my gosh so I always like doing that because I'm like it's four or five dollars and that's an easy thing for me to do that's making someone else a day that I don't even know and it's never about or also I do this every two or three weeks donate plasma I love going to donate plasma I get a great milkshake that's a really good one an hour in a chair to sit down and enjoy see but there's so many things that we don't give ourselves recognition for yeah so I think that's a good personal headline yeah for this week no totally God, we sound like such legends right now no I know it's, <laughs> it sounds like we're like on we our high horses about godsends. this <laughs> but, no, but I think the point is like when me we had this meeting with them and they're presenting these cards and I was like this is such a brilliant idea because all of the charities they work with are so specifically brilliant and both of us have experience with those charities and mm. love those charities yeah, and me actually lets you choose which one you want to support as well, which is nice. So whether that's the National Breast Cancer Foundation, Beyond Blue, Orange Sky, the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, or Minus 18. So we are very happy to have me on board for this week. And you can go ahead and download the MeGo app, open a Spend Me account, and make your daily spending a force for good. Consider it right for you. A serving New South Wales police officer has been charged with the murder of a Sydney couple in an act of domestic violence. I just want to remind everyone at the top of this story that it's going to be quite traumatising material that we're going to be discussing right now, but I also want to remind people that we're recording this on Tuesday morning, but it's an actively unfolding story. Now, many people will be across this. It's been one of the biggest headlines the past week, and I want to clarify that we'll be also using quite formal language here because it is all allegations at the moment, despite how obvious things are seeming. Mm. It is something that we need to really allow this to be subjected to normal legal processes, and we're still going to be using the language that relates to that. So a 28-year-old New South Wales police officer has been charged with two counts of murder over the suspicious disappearance of Sydney couple Jesse Baird and Luke Davies. Now, Jesse Baird was a former Channel 10 presenter, and his partner, Luke Davies, was a Qantas flight attendant. 
Now, the officer that's been charged with two counts of murder is Bolamere, and he handed himself into an Eastern Sydney police station last Friday morning. Lemaire was a former partner of Baird, and I want to make it really clear again that this is an act of intimate partner violence or domestic violence. So where they haven't found the bodies yet at this point in time, but what has the search been? So the search for their bodies has spread beyond Sydney and Newcastle today and detectives are now combing the area outside of Goulburn, which many people may know is a few hours outside of Sydney, more of a regional town. Police suspect that Lemaire took the bodies in a rented van to a rural property. It's The, the town is named Bungonia, I believe, and it's around 200 kilometres southwest of Sydney. Now, they allege he returned to the property on Thursday after buying weights from a store that detectives suspect were used to sink the bodies in, a, in an inland waterway. Jeez. So there are divers that are currently searching a number of reservoirs on farms in that region. But I remember a couple of days ago, they were looking in waterways in Newcastle. They were looking south of Kayama. This search has been really extensive. And it's interesting, given that this person has handed himself in, that he's still trying to actively evade having the bodies be found. I think it's it's really important because I think a lot of people will be like, why are we obsessive over this sort of police search? It's about bringing solace to the family. It's really yeah. about having some sort of finality and closure and being able to, you know, have the services required um, to sort of lay them to rest in whatever way the family wants. And it's really emotional and it's really important that this this occurs. It's really awful. I um, I live in the suburb that this happened and I was on a walk the other day went past the house without realising where the house was just walked past and seeing all of the flowers and notes and everything outside was just really took me back yeah and we live quite close to each other Mm. and I feel like the whole suburb has been quite sad it's been really it's been quieter it's been quite emotional time and there's a lot of people around talking about this and it's it's been pretty horrific now New South Wales police said that there was a large amount of blood found at this unit where they also found a projectile and a cartridge case and these were later matched to a police issued service weapon which had allegedly belonged to Lemaire he's a current serving officer now the Glock pistol was returned to a gun safe at a police station in Sydney at some point they don't really give a specific time obviously it's all being investigated right now so police are probably playing it a bit closer to their chest mm. yeah so it's been it's been returned sometime after the alleged double homicide and it was basically one of the main lines of inquiry for police when they realized that this was returned later um, and they had initially suspected LeBaire. Now, former New South Wales Police homicide detective Gary Jubelin says he believes investigators are close to retrieving this body and the search is continuing and dozens of officers are on the case essentially. Another thing I read was his he had a few family members that were in the police force but his mother was a former senior police woman? Yes, uh, yes, I believe so. And I think that's been confirmed in a couple of different articles by different news sources was that his mother was part of the New South Wales Police Force. And that is adding to this story, obviously, because you've got a serving officer and these are people in the community that are trusted with protection. Mm. And to have them potentially use a serious piece of weaponry to kill two people really speaks to... I think that what the argument that will eventually come out and has already come out is like, is it one bad apple? And it's like, it doesn't matter. It always brings into question whether someone is a fit and proper person to be serving in that force. Yeah. And another thing people are pointing out, which I think we've discussed as well, mm. is that uh, Lemaire used to be a like a celebrity blogger. Yeah. So not that I think many people would recognise him, but he's, you know, he did pretty actively on social he was kind of professional at finding celebrities when they would come here stalking them yeah he would wait at airports in hotels his whole dick was meeting a-listers and and finding wherever they were yeah i actually had a couple of people message me on cheek after this all came out saying that they knew of him and that they remember when taylor swift was in the country for i believe her 1989 tour that he stalked her for two weeks straight it's terrifying. Now, it's terrifying. And this is the thing. Obviously, we look at this now and go, all oh, the signs are all there. And that's such a classic move from the Australian public to do something after the fact. Mm-hmm. But to me, it really speaks to, could someone like that be a fit and proper person to be a police officer? Yeah. Someone who is obsessive and engages in stalking and harassment behaviour. Yeah. Which is what like that paparazzi celebrity blogger sort of style of person does as a job, that's as what, a hobby. It's what that is. Yeah. Another thing I read was... Didn't he go viral a few years ago for tasering? 
Yes. So a year after he joined the force, he was he made headlines. He was, went viral, exactly as you said. So there's this video from June of 2020 of Le Maire chasing a man and eventually sort of pinning him against like a rose garden wall and sort of threatening to shoot him if he moves and he tases him quite aggressively. And it's this really sort of aggressive confrontation that didn't seem necessary in the footage that was shown. Now, again... And 2020, yeah. that's... That is when police brutality conversation was at its highest like, height. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it again speaks to a culture of a lack of disciplinary action, a lack of really sort of looking at who is part of the police force and taking action and, and holding people accountable for their actions and their misconduct in that force. And obviously the big unfolding news right now on this is that the police will now not be a part of the Mardi Gras parade, which is happening in Sydney this weekend. Absolutely. So late last night, organisers of the Sydney Mardi Gras parade asked police not to march in the event, which is this Saturday, based on the actions that have occurred, so based on the double murder that Le Maire's committed. Now, when they were withdrawing the invitation, organisers acknowledged, obviously, that many officers are part of the LGBTQIA plus community and that that might be quite hurtful. But overall, the recent events have really left the parade like questioning whether there's a space to protest, celebrate and advocate for equality and to honour and grieve Baird and Davies. Then that was responded to by a New South Wales police spokesperson who confirmed that they sort of received and understood the message from the board, from mm. the Mardi Gras board. And they obviously say that like they want to continue to grow their relationship with the LGBTQIA plus community. Mm. But it's interesting because this comes after earlier on Monday. So early yesterday, New South Wales Police Commissioner Karen Webb said members of the force should be allowed to participate in the parade, saying it would exclude, you know, gay, lesbian cops from marching. Now, this has been a really ongoing conversation and what is interesting to me, and I want to I preface this by saying I don't think we are the right people to be talking about this, no. um, but I think that it is something where it is coming up a lot in a national conversation at the moment about the presence of cops in, in gay pride spaces and I think that it's actually important that people that aren't gay really care about this and engage with it as well. Yeah. I think the thing is is that we are, we immediately said what about the cops that are part of this community and want to be but we also said there are also individuals outside of their uniform who can march in separate ways and engage in separate ways. And the harm that police have caused to the gay community over decades historically has yeah. been I think ultimately it's not just about this one event. It's about taking an opportunity to say, no, you're not welcome this year because there hasn't been enough change for this to be valid and for you to be accepted and welcome here considering how how we're feeling and how we're grieving. And I think one of the biggest upsets out of all of this and a, the reason I think this stance has happened, well, I think there's multiple reasons, but a big thing, the police, when they made statements on this, called this a crime of passion. Absolutely. And so Karen Webb, the police commissioner, said, I would hate to see that this is the year that we are excluded because of the actions of one person that is not gay hate related. This is a crime of passion, we will allege. And she said this yesterday. Now, I think it's so important to talk about this because I am so fed up with seeing domestic violence, intimate partner violence, a double homicide in this instance referred to as a crime of passion mm. because it's not. No, it, it diminishes of, it. it. It does. And it makes it about like positive, loving emotion. And this yeah. is not and loving emotion. And this is emotion. not love. This is so premeditated yeah. and disgusting. Yes. And I think it's so important that we hold people accountable for the language that they use because what that reinforces to the Australian public, to the media, to politicians, to everyone who hears this message, and the whole country is talking about it, is that your revenge or your emotion or however you respond to something happening that's difficult in your life, which in this case clearly was the breakdown of a relationship, that it is in some way passionate to respond with violence. It's not passionate. This is a homicide. This is an act of murder. This is an act of domestic violence. And this is an epidemic in Australia. And to have a policewoman, and not only a policewoman, but the police commissioner of New South Wales, refer to it as a crime of passion shows how far we have to go in the conversation about domestic violence and intimate partner violence and the way that it is treated. Yeah. Because it is abhorrent. And I... I deeply feel for the families who have had to see this conversation unfold and see the people that are at the top of the structure claiming to protect us completely fail to even talk about it in adequate, appropriate ways. Mm. The new superhero movie, Madam Web, may be an absolute dumpster fire, but the entertainment value of lead actress Dakota Johnson on the press tour is enough to have us all hoping for a sequel. 
I don't think since Robert Patterson was asked about his time in Twilight has an actor cared less or shown as little interest in their own movie as Dakota Johnson is currently for Madam Web. I love that. I actually, I'm lo- I'm obsessed with them both. I love Robert Pattinson. I love Dakota Johnson, and the energy they're bringing is honest. It's so it's so funny. It's so refreshing. That's what I, I was, was going to use the R word. It's refreshing. refreshing. <laughs> I think so as well. I also am just going to just preface this that every time I say like I don't know whether it's just because I used to joke and be like hello Madame, but like I go to say Madame Webb, and I'm pretty sure it's just Madam. <laughs> I think we just interchange and keep people on their toes. Yeah, if you're listening, so. do a count on the Madams versus the Madams. Madame Webb. Okay, but unlike Twilight which does have objectively huge commercial success, Madam Web could almost be considered a comedy on the onslaught of negative reviews this movie has had. <laughs> like, The Guardian has <laughs> described it as dumb and schlocky, an unholy mess, and a janky ripoff made by people afraid of legal action. <laughs> At first glance, right, you would think that Madam Web would, like, have potential, right? Because, like, Dakota Johnson, who's best known for the Fifty Shades franchise, if you don't know, cast as the lead. It also had, like, bombshell Sydney Sweeney. And the plot doesn't sound completely terrible. Like, Dakota Johnson plays a psychic who works along Ben Parker, who is Uncle Ben in the Spider-Man series. So I he goes see, on. I see. That's the link, right? Um, and that's played by Adam Scott, who oh. we love as well. And she has to like go and protect three spider women, one of which is Sydney Sweeney. And honestly, I don't really have much clue beyond that because I've never followed a superhero movie in my life and I don't really understand the Marvel slash DC universes. But I also know that technically this movie is Sony, which is not Marvel or DC, so it's like a standalone universe. What the fuck? Yeah, it's very confusing. Anyway, but like it's still riding the superhero Mm. train. So it should be a pretty guaranteed success, you would think. Anyways, (laughs) the movie has faced a miserable box office performance, making it the lowest grossing opening weekend in any Spidey-adjacent movie in this century and by a long shot. (laughs) I just want to say how funny the reviews were. Like, Rotten Tomato... Uh, I looked at that and one of their top critics said, even Johnson has her limits and Madam Webb blows so far past them that you can practically guess the scenes that were shot last based on the degree in which the star has given up. That's horrendous. <laughs> I've, but at least people love her so much that they're like, lol, she, she's out of it. Oh, yeah, I know. And not only was the script apparently abysmal, but the editing was even so bad that sometimes like what, they like their mouths weren't matching up to what they were saying because they were like dubbing in post. I feel sorry for them that they've contractually agreed to this and they have to tour it. Well, okay, so you can understand why Dakota Johnson wanted to then distance herself a bit from this film. And she started off pretty strong. Like this press tour junket she's done is so funny. To just run through a few of my favorite moments from it, after the movie had already been released, she was asked if she'd seen the movie yet, and she goes, I don't know when I'll see it. Someday. Oh my God, I'm obsessed with her. (laughs) When asked if she could name any of the Tom Holland, who is the most recent Spider-Man, Spider-Man movies, she says, yeah, there's uh, Spider-Man, here he comes. (laughs) Spider-Man, he's back. (laughs) And the Goblet of (laughs) Spider-Man. I actually am in love with her. And then another interview, she just kind of rabbit holed when they were talking about the film industry right now in how much she hates the film industry right now. And she said, the people who are running streaming platforms don't trust creative people or artists to know what's going to work and that's just going to make us implode. It's really heartbreaking. It's just so fucking hard. It's so hard to get anything made. She then went on to say how boring it is that we just keep creating the same thing over and over again. I want to feel inspired. I want to see new worlds. I want to meet complicated people on screen. Hilarious from someone who's recreating essentially the Spider-Man universe prequel. It's all connected. Huge diss. She knows what she's doing. Huge diss. Also fair. We've made that point before. I don't want to see another Spider-Man film, to be honest. No, make another Barbie. She also said that there were, like when she was asked about the difference between what we're seeing on screen and what was the original script, she laughed and said there's been drastic changes. Oh, this is horrendous. No, I know. And then this kind of plays into this theory that, like, if you think of how great this cast is, it must have been so far from what the original script was. Like, that's what people are assuming. And there's also this theory that these actors were probably told 
that this would eventually link to Marvel and be part of the Marvel Universe, but, like, might have been a bit hoodwinked by the whole Sony aspect. Mm, great theorising. The thing I have seen is that there's a bit of beef with her co-stars. Can you can you explain that Again, for like, me? who knows if it actually is beef, but yeah. it's so funny. Like, again, in this ridiculous press junket, she's asked, like, what her relationship is like with her co-stars. And she says, it was so fun having them around. The three of them really bonded. And then there was me. <gasps> she just does not care. It's like she took down Ellen, really. She was the downfall of Ellen DeGeneres. Well, you know, that's what I was saying. Like, I just think it's a love for her. And maybe it's not everyone's cup of tea, but she just has this, like, dry, dry, dry sense of humour. And she doesn't even necessarily want you to like her, which is the aloofness is what I like. (laughs) We're not used to that. We're not used to someone who's not willing or caring about being liked. But I also think sometimes when I engage with these people, not that you need to be liked or that it doesn't matter, but I always think, is she the problem too? Potentially. We don't know. But in the same way that's like, you know people ask like, who would you invite to a dinner party? Her and Aubrey Plaza is my answer. I want to see them together. I want to hang out with someone like that. It would teach me a lot. I know. And I actually think I'm going to have to go watch this movie. And I'm going to have to report back. I actually have a theory that this is going to be a sleeper hit. Like, this is going to be so bad that it actually is camp and, like, fun. Like, everyone actually just loves the film in the end because it's so bad. Table that prediction. Go for it. That's what I'm predicting. (laughs) The Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that frozen embryos created and stored for IVF are children. This is wild. This is a huge story. This is a massive international story despite being about one state. Mm. And it's basically focused on this idea of fetal personhood laws, which I fundamentally disagree with. And it's really the argument that pro-life, which I would say anti-choice instead, um, people or activists, anti-abortion activists put forward. Mm. And so Alabama is one of several states that have passed provisions that grant some measure of legal protection to fetuses. Now, I want to openly start by saying this is terrifying. It's fucking terrifying. But we're not at risk of this happening in Australia at present. No. We have better reproductive rights. We have better reproductive laws. They're not great. They're not as exceptional as they could be. But I want to say that the aim of this story and what the takeaway isn't to freak out about your personal bodily autonomy right this second. But it is to say that we really should be caring for and thinking about what's happening in the US because I think often while these sort of instances happen in a vacuum, what we're really looking at is like this could inspire laws elsewhere around the world, in the US. But it's also just showing the outlook and headspace of you know, with our allies and with countries that we identify with in a lot of other ways. Totally. Okay, what was this case actually about? Yeah, so essentially a hospital patient, I believe in 2020, walked into one of Alabama's fertility clinics and according to court documents got into the clinic through this unsecured doorway and they removed several frozen embryos when they got in there. Right. Now, the patient picked them up, but the sub-zero temperatures at which they were being stored caused a freezer burn to their hand. They dropped the embryos, they hit the floor and they were destroyed. Then the three couples whose embryos were destroyed as a result of this brought lawsuits against the clinic under legislation which, for context, was first enacted in 1872 that allows parents to recover damages for a child's death. Right. So this is the sort of nature and the the actual legal set out of how this has occurred. They're saying this is the wrongful death of my child because someone's dropped a frozen embryo in a clinic. Basically, the case was asking if a frozen embryo is considered a child under Alabama's state law and the high court in Alabama ruled it was. So what is what is the ruling? So the ruling was a majority eight to one. So no question yeah, there. They, yeah, and it's, it, oh yeah, and a very conservative state. Basically, they found it was a long established precedent that unborn children are children for the purpose of this piece of legislation, which is like the wrongful death of a minor act, basically. Yeah. Now. If there was any doubt about this sort of definition, they say that was removed by a 2018 amendment to Alabama state constitution, which declared that it was public policy of the state to recognise and support the sanctity of unborn life and the rights of unborn children. So this is an anti-abortion state. And this is what they're relying on to continue to increase the control and power they exert over the bodies of people that can get pregnant. The Chief Justice, Tom Parker, he drew, he sort of has this really wide reputation for his particularly overtly religious views. And in his concurring opinion on this judgment, 
he wrote that the state constitution includes the theologically based view that human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God. Are you fucking serious? This is the chief justice of the court in Alabama, the highest court they have. This is this is something that is in writing, in court, that is being pointed to as part of a concurring opinion. It's the inability to separate church and state. Yeah. What does this actually mean for IVF treatment now? Like, as with most legal rulings, we're not actually going to see all of the effects just yet because as this is applied and as the court sort of faces new cases, that's where they'll be able to really see how this sort of new precedent is applied in actual real-life circumstances. Mm. But the implications on clinics are really immediate because at least three providers, three defendants in the case, um, have already said they're pausing IVF treatments, basically citing the potential civil and criminal liability as a result of this decision. That is so depressing for all of these women that would be struggling with infertility. That is their only option. Yeah. And so basically these clinics are saying that the question that this opens up, like the floodgate argument that really occurs here, is whether the destruction of an embryo results in criminal homicide charges. Jesus. This is literally the the gravity. Exactly. And so you're opening yourself up to that and you don't want to be the test case. But to see that so many people that want to conceive and who are struggling with fertility cannot conceive a child because they can't access this form of healthcare. Again, this science that's been developed to help people have babies, they're actually doing... But that's also so many women, so many women would see IVF as, you know, it's an amazing medical advancement and is the final hope if you want to be a mother. Yeah, and and this is, it's so counterintuitive as a decision because these are the people that want babies to be born. That want, that's family orientated and wants nuclear families being made. And they're stopping women from doing that. But I think the other thing to note, and I think I mentioned this on our Instagram page at bigsmalltalk underscore pod the other day when a question came up about this story, which was that, you know, I saw this video from Liz Plank, who's one of the best people on Instagram and TikTok. And one of the comments she made around this was that a 14 year old in Alabama who is pregnant because of, you know, rape Mm. would be forced to have a child, but a 35 year old struggling with fertility can't. Yeah. And so what is the purpose of this? It's not actually about babies. It's not actually about a fetus. It's not actually about fighting for the rights of children or whatever. I'm not, I'm I'm confused what their point is at all now. Like it's not even playing to either side now. Their point is control. Their point is to exert power and to say to, you know, to say to people who could get pregnant that we have the power over reproduction and that we have the choice. So could this be appealed, like if it goes to the Supreme Court? No. The reason this is kind of limited from here is that it's based on Alabama's constitution and states' highest courts are really the ultimate authorities on this constitution that mm. exists. And this is the problem with America is that if you have something occurring at a state level, basically federal powers have really allowed states to make their own decisions. Yeah. So when Roe v. Wade was overturned, it really said, states, it's up to you. And that means that when states make individual decisions, people can't really fight above that because states have so much individual power power that isn't really necessarily able to be challenged by higher courts. I was reading an article this morning on Reuters that said one possible path to get this issue to the Supreme Court in the US would be for the families that are now really struggling to access IVF to have a lawsuit arguing their federal constitutional rights were violated when they lost their access to healthcare. That's a possible line of inquiry. Yeah. But again, it's but it's a conservative a ridiculous m- fight and admin and money and time. Of course, but also you've got a conservative Supreme Court. Mm. So you're putting all of that into this, it's a huge risk because you're just going up against a bunch of conservatives again, just in a higher court. Yeah. Do you think it could go further than Alabama? This is hard because as I was saying earlier, it's not that other states will now have this law applied, but it's more that you look at somewhere like Texas and go, oh, they're going to be inspired by this. Yeah, they're like, oh, yeah. we can do, we that, can get away with literally anything. Exactly. <laughs> it's it, That's exactly it. It's not that, okay, this is now applied widely in the US. This is just Alabama right now. So it's not a direct effect. It's really trickle down. It's really that somewhere like Texas could look at this and go, someone in Texas could pursue this line of inquiry in court by bringing a lawsuit of the same nature. Yeah. So it's really about like the sort of mirror image of see how that happened. We can have that happen here now. Exactly. But it's not 
going to impact them directly. That's something we're just going to have to watch. Absolutely. This is going to be an unfolding story. And I think it's really important to just bring it back to the fact that Roe v. Wade was overturned in 2022. And this is what was spoken about. This, this like, was the, the that it was the first. It was a domino effect and there would be a long fall. And this yeah. is part of that. We were all so affected around the globe when that happened. And it's just playing into those fears. Absolutely. People said IVF might be next, contraceptive might be next, and these are all things that are currently being discussed. Yeah. Yeah. Billie Eilish at the People's Choice Awards asked what probably all of us would have asked if we also had multiple Grammys, an Oscar, and an obscene amount of talent. Why are TikTokers here? (laughs) You actually never... You just did that headline in five seconds. Pretty much, as we know, TikTokers are everywhere, and... Not everyone's thrilled about it. Not everyone gets TikTok. I think it's very easily dismissed. And case in point for that would be Billie Eilish at the People's Choice Awards this year. So on February 18th, the singer is seen at the awards sitting at a table. She's sitting next to Kylie Minogue, right? Anyways, Billie was caught out complaining. Someone was filming her. She actually covers her mouth in it. I think that's because she was so hyper aware of lip reading, but the audio picked it up anyway. And she pretty much says to Kylie there are so many TikTokers here and like she looks less than impressed while saying it. It's funny because like as she's saying that you can see like a crowd of TikTokers who've been put on floor seats like standing right in front of her. And while that's not a huge story in itself, the lip reading audio moment of it went a bit viral afterwards and obviously TikTokers were all pretty even even less impressed. A big one being Bryce Hall. Do you remember Bryce Hall from back in the day? No. Neither do I. Um, I, <laughs> I don't really, I don't really know who he is. But I know, I think he dated. He either dated a Demilio or Addison Rae. But he was like a hype house original. N- none of those people, no faces in my mind. There's nothing. Do you remember when like COVID started and they, all these TikTokers would like have a house together? No. Jeez, <laughs> I want to do. We a should deep all dive. remember that. We should all remember that. It was like, I guess YouTubers did it as well back in the day, but like they were like caught, I think they were the hype house and it was like, and they danced together and oh, they'd like make content. Okay. I yes. Yeah. Yes. You, you would remember Sorry, this. Sorry. I'm with you. Yeah, I thought yeah, you yeah. meant this was a big brother situation. Anyway, he became big from that back in the day, but he posted a video and in this video, he like sarcastically apologizes for not bowing down to Billie Eilish and says that like, he used to be a fan and now he doesn't think he can renegade to any of your songs anymore. So thanks for taking all my content. And like, it just I think it all just started a bit of a debate and a bit of discussion. Other TikTokers have commented on it. But like, there were pretty big names there. I think Alex Earl was there, who you now know um, <laughs> off because I've explained. Chris Olsen, James Charles, like they were all invited by the People's Choice Awards. And that's kind of what they were point, uh, Bryce pointed out as well. He's like, we were invited. Like we didn't just crash. Yeah. We were invited here. Yeah, I just think it's interesting because I think TikTokers obviously have these huge, huge platforms now and huge loyal fan bases. And it's also not a surprising or new thing. Like before that, as I said, was YouTubers and we've seen plenty of influences that way cross over into the big time. Like I think Emma Chamberlain would be my prime example of that. Like she would be very accepted now in a more high profile event. Like she's done Louis Vuitton. She's the Met Gala. You know what I mean? So it does happen. And I think it's in the same way if you think about it as the Kardashians crossed entertainment boundaries in their time and like kind of brought in this new reality star type of celebrity. And I think TikTokers have started to do the same in their own generation, in their own way. Yeah, I think it's difficult because, like, they're sort of – it's that sort of cult of influencer where you're, like, someone like Billie Eilish, who is an Oscar winner, who is a Grammy winner, who is, like – a Very talented. Yes. (laughs) Would be – I guess you'd be frustrated that you're – I understand. I get it too. But it's a bit elitist. I think this is what's interesting. I think it's that feeling of, like, TikTokers, like, bring down the level – off eliteness of That's an event. The thing. It's about the social hierarchy. It's, yeah, and it's like, oh, what are these guys doing here? But if you think about it, I think it makes sense for them to be at the People's Choice Awards because they are entertainment. They are the people's choice. They are the people's choice. They are the mainstream audiences that people are turning to. So I think I get it for this specific yes. event. They are dominating culture and that event is for that. Also, can I just say, someone like Billie Eilish is consistently elevated by TikTokers. Like her profile and her career, like currently, what was I made for was one of the biggest sort of TikTok sounds over the last year. And I'm not saying she needed that to be successful. She already was. But what I am saying is, 
I just think that you don't want to be caught out doing something like that, even though you might privately think it, because it just positions you as thinking you're above others. Yeah. and But then also part of me, and I know this could sound elitist, but like, I like Hollywood feeling unattainable and elite in a lot of Ooh, ways. Like, that's a great take. You know, I, I wouldn't want it diluted by TikTokers in some, for some events. I think... I kind of But this is the event it's okay, which is This what is we're the saying. event it's okay. But you know, and that's what I'm saying. I get it for people's choice. But if I started seeing this at like the Oscars, I'd be like, why, why, what? <laughs> like, I, I get it, because I get what you're saying, but it's interesting because those spaces are so cultivated for like, yes, you're right, that unattainable aspirational success yes. creation, yes. blah, blah, blah. And that's why it's brilliant when someone like Ricky Gervais hosts the Golden Globes because it's bringing them down to level, right? Oh, yes. It's just the different forms in which you cross the boundaries. It's exactly as you described. Great take. <laughs> no notes. The other thing I wanted to say before we move on to this story is, again, this has all made headlines again from a combination of lip reading and people recording celebrities at these shows, at these events. I think we've seen it at recent games, at fashion shows, at these award shows. Getting a bit ethically ridiculous uh-huh. that these people are having like very intimate, this close to someone else's face conversation and it's being broadcasted to the whole world. Yeah. And it's like, that's such an invasion of privacy. It's kind of the rise of the digital age, but also it feels a bit planted. I think if you're at an award show, you're like, don't be an idiot. Watch what you're saying Everyone's because cameras are everywhere. Mm. But like if I'm just at a football game or whatever and I just want to turn to someone and say something like, <laughs> shit, I would be caught up saying. I know, same. <laughs> Thousands have gathered in cities across Europe to commemorate two years since the start of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Now, there's a lot to cover here, but yeah. instead we actually found this really great article, Sarah found it, I didn't find it, from the UK Independent, which basically shows us two years of war in Ukraine, it's Russia's invasion in numbers. That's the title of the article. And I just want to really relay and chat through some of these figures. Yeah, but also before we get into this, like, two years. Two years. It doesn't feel like it's been two years. No, but that, again, like I think in the last few months, we are talking about this earlier, you know, what's been happening in Gaza to Palestinian people has really sort of distracted from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we also want to say, like, the thing about these wars and how ongoing they are is that we become desensitised. Mm. And that's why it's really important to revisit the numbers and to yeah. really go through what's happened and how impactful it's been. Yeah, and actually when we were discussing this, it was like, wait, wait you kind of forget how this all started. Two years ago now, I guess, like it doesn't feel like long ago, but you're kind of like, wait, what was this all? Where did, where did this even come from? Yes. And we're actually reading up on it. So if this helps as well for you, what my understanding was at the time of, obviously it's very lame and at its core, Putin just being a terrible, terrible person and wanting to extend his power. But I did think it was really interesting to look back at the history. Ukraine was kind of leaning more towards the EU and aligning itself more with uh, European nations and leaning away from Russia. And uh, there was an event that happened in 2014 where Russia ended up exerting a lot of its power and bringing military forces in. And I think that was a real wake-up call of like how much influence Russia had in Ukraine. And from that, the new president started, you know, making moves and there was discussions about joining NATO, which is pretty much like an alliance with some key European countries. And that Putin obviously did not like because one of the big things on NATO, one of the packs is if one's attacked, it's an attack on all. And so if they did go ahead with joining NATO... Obviously, that makes Ukraine a lot more powerful and much more of a threat to Russia to have that support and to move so far away from its historical roots, which is with Russia. So I just thought that was interesting to give context as to part. I mean, that's such a tiny part of it, but like why this all started. Yeah, that is really helpful context because I feel like I, again, we're so desensitized and it's been so long now that I think we forget how this all started and what's still going on now. Mm. And I was reading, so part of this article, and this is all from that independent UK article we spoke about earlier, but only last Thursday did UN's human rights monitoring mission said it had verified 30,457 civilian casualties had occurred since the 24th February 2022. However, the Ukraine believes the true figure is is much higher. It's also estimated that there have been 505,000 Ukrainian and Russian troop casualties. 
Then, according to the UN's High Commissioner for Refugees, an estimated 3.7 million people have been driven from their homes but remain in Ukraine, and a further 6.3 million Ukrainians are now refugees sheltering in other countries. So that's 10 million yeah. displaced. No, it's 10 huge. 10 million. The US-based Institute for the Study of War, which is closely monitoring this conflict, calculates that Russia currently occupies 18% of Ukraine's territory, but that's not changed in the last year, but previously it was actually 27%. So it's gone down, but it's actually maintained at that 18% for quite a while. Mm. An estimate of the cost of repairing the damage to Ukraine's infrastructure is currently at US $151.2 billion. Jesus. There's been hundreds of billions in aid supplied by allied nations to the Ukraine. Mm. There have been so many casualties. There's been so much displacement. There's been so much harm. There's also been 20,000 people, I believe, or just under 20,000 people in Russia who were actual anti-war protesters, which is such a brave act in that nation. Yeah. I think it's really important that we come back to this on an anniversary and talk about it because we there's been so much news in the last especially since we started this podcast we haven't really been able to do a deep dive on this like we've wanted to. Yeah. And this is an opportunity to talk about it because it's it it matters and it's meaningful and it's ongoing and it's impactful. So I hope that drives you to maybe go and look at something that go and look at a piece of content whether it be a podcast or a news article that actually unpacks this if you want to know more yeah and also it's just it's crazy to think I I remember when this happened and Putin's promise was this was going to be like a 10-day operation yeah and we're two years on now. Yeah, and but this is also something where we discuss this and we look at this, and this is the claim that the start and everyone watches on and is incessant about watching the footage and staying up to date, mm. and we fall off the wagon and we look at other news issues. And this might happen in Gaza too, and that's why it's so important to keep talking about both. Yeah. The individual gender pay gaps of nearly 5,000 businesses across Australia, so that's every private company with 100 employees or more, was published today with the aim of attempting to reduce the gender pay gap. So, the, yeah, this, it's landmark data that has been released today, Tuesday, for the first time by the government's Workplace Gender Equality Agency. And the figures paint a pretty disappointing picture with some of the country's biggest employers posting a disparity of 30 to 40% in favour of male employees. So, looking through it, I thought it's interesting to note that airlines tended to have the most significant pay gaps. Alliance Airlines had a pay gap of 50.2%, Jetstars was 43.7%, Virgin sat at 41.7%, Cathay Pacific 39.5%, and Qantas a pay gap of 37%. It's really fucked. Yeah. It's really eye-watering. It's just, I, I actually cannot fathom that. I didn't know that that numbers were so high. Really high. And a Qantas spokesperson actually has responded to this and said that the pay gap does not mean that women were paid less than men to do the same jobs at Qantas and Jetstar, but shows there is a significant underrepresentation of women in highly paid roles like pilots and engineers across airlines globally, and that the company is working hard to encourage more women into pilot and engineering roles. What So, so what were the reasons found for the pay gap? Well, I think that's kind of linking to what I was just saying before with Qantas's response, because they're not they're not wrong, really. And KPMG did a study into this and their research found that there were a few main reasons. One, that women bearing the brunt of caring responsibilities for children or had older family members caused about one third of the gender pay gap. Gender discrimination accounted for 36% of the gender pay gap. That's huge, yes. that stat. And I think with that, it's talking about even if it's subconscious, But also it's talking about women are less likely to negotiate pay Mm -hmm. and less likely to put themselves forward and that that is so ingrained and so much to unlearn. Unlearn, yeah. And the other driver of the pay gap was industrial and occupational segregation, which sees women are overrepresented in lower paid industries. And that was actually reflected in the data, which showed that while every – industry had a pay gap in favour of men, the largest pay gaps tended to be in the highest paid industries and then the smaller gaps were in the lower paid. Yeah, that's and really interesting. Women are just not likely to sit in those higher paying roles but it really, or industries. And it really points to the fact that the I often think like, oh, is it a lower paid industry and that's why and women are in it or is it lower paid because women 
dominate it. And they're but, usually yeah. industries that involve caring. So things like childcare or services that are more feminized. So like yeah. hairdressing and things, these are lower paid industries overrepresented by women. Exactly. And what you find, and that data points to it, is that when men enter those industries, they're seen as a novelty and they're actually paid more highly. So mm. men in childcare, men in teaching, men who are in makeup and services industries mm. are usually considered a novelty, but women in male dominated industries do not have the same reception, basically. Yeah. And so another question for me, why has this data been published? Like, did they, do they have to? Well, the data comes after the government passed the Workplace Gender Equality Amendment, which is the closing the gender pay gap bill, which was last year in 2023. Yeah. And so... Nationally, the gender pay gap sits at 19%, which means over the year, the median a woman is paid is $18,461 less than the median of what a man is paid. And 19% is the lowest on record. We're yeah. actually closing the it's, gap and it's, it's still that it's bad. It's improving. And part of what release, like the motivator in publishing this data is in an effort to close that gap. And Mary Wooldridge, who is the chief executive of the WGEA, explained it by saying, the evidence has shown that overseas publishing individual company pay gaps is a catalyst for action to be taken. It's a shaming exercise. It's a shaming exercise. And it's interesting that the data shows that countries that have done it have seen improvement yeah. after doing that. And I think it's also important that we explain what the gender pay gap actually is because it's not fair, pay, like equal pay for equal work. Yeah. And I think a lot of people get confused with that. Exactly, because people think it just means like that in the same workplace a man and a woman who are doing the same job get paid differently. That's that's illegal. You cannot be doing that. That's it's actually been law in Australia for decades yeah. that you cannot do that. That's unfair pay. What we're really looking at here is over the course of a lifetime, how much does a man make versus how much does a woman make? Mm. And all of the factors that actually play into why that occurs. Which is what we were talking about before. It's exactly. the childbearing, it's not being in industries that are higher paying. Yes. It's it's the inherent value that a woman offers to a workplace being less than a man, basically. Mm. And I think a lot of it comes back to the normalisation of women taking the brunt of the primary caring responsibilities and men never being expected to do that. Mm. And that culture is changing. This data shows it, but slowly. Obviously, this is such a wide-scale reflection of our society and it's complex. And the argument, because of that, that you hear from companies is, well, we get what we get. Like, engineering companies would be like, Oh, but the guys are the only ones applying for this. So yeah. why? that's why we have more guys. And it's like, yeah, I get that. But there are still proactive things that companies can be doing. And this is what has been encouraged to still be doing something. Even though this is going to take generations to fix, there's still stuff you can do to help prod this along. And, and that is in going to schools, building earlier pipelines, through recruitment, through scholarships, through encouragement, like... If every company was doing their little bit on that front, we would see change. And I think that's part of publishing this data is to shame these companies into doing more of that. Absolutely. And I find that a lot of the argument men put up is that, yeah, women don't want to take on these roles. There's lots of overtime. There's lots of dangerous work that women don't want to do, blah, blah, blah. But I think one of the other things that I find, it's, it might be a controversial take, but often in, like, say, engineering or traditionally male trades mm. as well, they'll offer positions to women to try and meet some sort of quota that the company's enforced to try and, like, get, you know, get back on track with gender equality. But often we see women fail in those roles because they're being elevated to high positions in industries that aren't willing to accept them and they don't have the necessary time and experience and they get elevated to management because they want to meet a quota yeah. but they're not set up for success because they aren't given the tools, the pathways to reach those heights and then the men also resent the women for taking higher roles without feeling like they've earned it if that makes sense. Yeah. It can be really controversial yeah. when companies try and like inject these quotas but they've never actually done the, the, the groundwork to get women into the industry it's in the first place. That's what I'm it, saying. It's the pipeline. It's like it's this glass cliff early. phenomenon yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Um, it's really interesting and I think that this is something that we are going to be consistently looking at and discussing because gender equality stats come out multiple times a year and it's important to look at this data because it it impacts you. It impacts your super. It impacts your pay. It impacts every aspect of your life basically mm. and how you are set up at the end of your life when you want to retire yeah. and that matters. Okay, we are now at the Q&A section for this week. Thank you so much for listening this far. And if you do have any questions, queries, feedback, anything, please send it in on our Instagram, bigsmalltalk underscore pod. We love, 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 love hearing it. Um, and we have a question here from Annie today, and it says, how was Elizabeth Day? For those who don't know, Hannah Ferguson here <laughs> was in pretty much a sold-out Opera House show last night. 
interviewing author Elizabeth Day, who is incredible, and you did such a good job with it. And my I'll queen let you was take the, them here. My queen was there with my mum, who was like so proud. She sent you like seven texts. <laughs> I, and, and, and Sarah, I picked up Sarah this morning on the way here, and I Sarah got in the car. I said, "Lizzie sent me like three texts. I need to Lizzie, Sarah's mum. Sorry, can I shout out Lizzie? Yeah, she'd love it." And Sarah just looks at me and goes, "How did she get your phone number?" <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't know. And I literally was like, "Sarah, we exchanged phone numbers at your birthday party. What are you absolutely talking about? Lizzie and I are best friends." No. I had the best time. I was absolutely shitting myself with fear last night before I went on stage because you have to, as the, I was interviewing Elizabeth, so I take the stage first, introduce her, do all of the housekeeping stuff. Yeah. And so I get really nervous to like, you know, get right the acknowledgement of country, make sure everything is exactly to the standard that I want. I'm always so shattered beforehand. I'm so shaky. Um, but it was amazing. And I, I had pages of notes written out. I didn't look at them once. No, you didn't look at your notes. I kept like being like, that's so impressive. She's memorized these entirely. I was really proud proud of myself. But also just for a bit of context people who don't know who Elizabeth Day is she wrote the book How to Fail. Yes that's her podcast and so her podcast she's interviewed Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Stanley Tucci, Mm. Bernie Sanders Mm -hmm. like she is incredible and she's written I think eight books and it was just such an honour to be asked because the production company I'd worked with before and he put me forward to interview her and she was, she got my audio book twice by accident, she bought my book she got me to sign it last night, she was just lovely. Her voice was also just so lovely to listen to, the British accent my auntie said she sounds like Nigella Lawson, which is basically oh, the greatest compliment of all time. It is. But can I, sorry, I know this was about Elizabeth Day, but I I had the best night. I'm absolutely shattered today here. I feel like I'm hungover, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm just exhausted because it didn't end till about half past 10 and then I had to get out and et cetera. But um, how was Taylor Swift? Oh, <laughs> obviously the best night ever. Mine was a bit of an emotional roller coaster that night because I went on the Friday night, which is when the thunderstorms hit in Sydney. Yes. And so when I entered, I had floor seats. And as I entered the tunnel at the top, it started raining. And then by the time I was about to walk out into the, the concert, into my seats, they said, no, you can't. Yeah. Because it had started thundering and lightning and she can't perform with that. Yep. So then we had to wait under a tunnel for like an hour and a half having no phone reception and no idea if the concert was cancelled or not. Like we had, I didn't even know when the storm was meant to pass. So I was there freaking, I was like, this is such a mood killer. Yeah. Sabrina Carpenter's set got cancelled, but thankfully Taylor went ahead. Yes. And I just had the best time and played White Horse, the surprise song. And she also sung. And then the other song she did was How to Get the Girl. And I knew all the words and that was really all I wanted and how crazy is this? The people that I was sat next to. I was going to bring this up, so I'm glad you this did. This was so, so we actually got our seats moved because the wet weather was so bad. They had to put up this tent to like keep the equipment dry. And it meant when we sat in our seats, finally, our they... view was obstructed. Oh, so they move you forward? So I full Karen. Like I have never done this before in my life, but I was like, no, like yeah, I have time. to see the stage. So I went up to one of the people and I was like, hi, I'm really sorry, but like our seats, we can't really see the stage properly and we didn't pay for obstructed viewing. And without even like a second, she didn't even say a word to me. She just like went into a fanny pack, pulled out two new tickets and, and was like, here. And I was like, great. Holy fuck. So then I took the tickets and we went and moved to these new seats and they were way better than the seats that we were meant to have. Like, gun barrel down Karen. the middle. I was like, wow, it's so much fun being Karen. This because has set me up for life. I had to, And then I sat next to these new people and I was so relieved because they were obviously huge Taylor Swift fans. And I was like, great. I feel so comfortable to sing and dance right now. And then I get a message the next day being like, we love big small talk and like they just didn't realize and they were like we thought it was you and we didn't realize till we saw it on your Instagram afterwards and I was like that is so surreal to me it's really nice it's really nice also because I was watching your stories and I was like absolutely get fucked you were so (laughs) close I was watching that's how it it happened no I know and it was amazing because you were like the people sitting next to me messaged me afterwards but I was glad because you said and I thought this is a good point that like sometimes when you know the people sitting next to you know you you're a bit more nervous to be like a bit like fucked in your dancing don't call me kid (laughs) exactly (laughs) So that was really sweet. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening again this week. Please send us a message on BigSmallTalk underscore pod if you have any questions, feedback, queries. And please hit the follow, leave a review, tap the bell, all of the above. It really helps. Thank you so much. See you next Tuesday. See you next Tuesday.